Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Well, the S&P Bank's index this year is up about 20%. Citizens Financial, a $17 billion bank based in Providence, Rhode Island, or Boston, is up about 24% this year. Uh, To give us an overview of what is going on in the corporate and commercial banking business, we turn to Don McCree. Don is Vice Chairman and Head of Commercial Banking for Citizens Financial Group. He joins us live in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Don, we've had just uh, a tremendous melt up in financial markets this year. How are your corporate customers feeling right now? Do they feel like they need to be aggressive on the M&A front? Um, it depends on the nature of the customer. I, I think our customers, I'd say, are, are optimistic in general. Their businesses are performing quite well. Uh, they're getting good good lift, as you said, on their stock prices. So all, be, all else being equal, that's not a recipe for a lot of M&A. What we're seeing in our businesses is with our smaller clients, particularly the private clients, M&A is very robust as, as clients try to get some scale or maybe get repositioned to compete in, in the broader world economy. One thing that I thought was really interesting about Citizens is that uh, on your commercial side, you grew commercial loans by about 21% uh, over the past few years. Uh, Meanwhile, peers grew only by 10%. Why? How? So if you go back in our history, we did our public offering just about five years ago, uh, and we'll celebrate our public offering uh, this fall. Um, We we were owned by the Royal Bank of Scotland for eight years post the financial crisis, and it was quite a uh, withdrawing type of, uh, of event for Citizens Bank. So we spent eight years basically static. Uh, when we did the IPO, we decided to accelerate certain of our businesses, which hadn't grown in the prior eight years. And we also expanded regionally into the Southeast and into the Midwest and into the New York area. So most of our growth has been not necessarily within our traditional client base. It's been with new clients, which we're adding at a rate of about 300 a year right now. So particularly in the higher growth parts of the country. So on the M&A front, I know you guys bought Bowstring Advisors. I guess it's a second boutique M&A advisory firm. So how do you view M&A opportunities in kind of the middle market where I think you guys tend to Yeah, no, it's it's terrific. And Bowstring has been our latest uh, our latest acquisition, and it's really hit the ground running. As I said, a lot of private companies are uh, going through ownership changes and and and. Uh, basically generational transitions. So we think it's a ripe area for M&A in general. What we've tried to do as we've added capabilities is add firms that have specialties in certain industries and specialties in the middle market. And you'll probably see us continue to do that. And if I look at my client base, I've got about 3,000 private companies at the core of my client base. And uh, what we've been trying to do for the last several years is bring a set of high quality solutions and advisory capabilities to those clients as they as they kind of change their um, the, the nature of their businesses. Where, where are we? in the M&A cycle. Was last year the peak? I don't think so, based on what we're seeing in our pipelines. Um, it's, it, our pipelines are much stronger this year than they were last year. Um, and we think that, again, it might be different when you're talking about large company M&A and mid-sized company M&A. We think we've got several years to run on the mid-company size. Are there any sectors in particular that you guys are focusing on? You think there might be areas of activity? Uh, we're seeing a lot of activity in business services, which is what Bowstring is at its core. Okay. Uh, we're seeing a lot of activity actually right now in gaming, where we have a very strong uh, uh, presence. And we're seeing increasing amount of activity in anything tech. 
Um, so, so those are the three that we're really focused on. I want to go back to the idea of growing your loans and your customer base. And I'm wondering, you're doing so at a time of a lot of competition, both from other regional banks as well as the big banks that are yeah. looking to expand their loan books. So how do you win customers without uh, loosening your standards to a degree that makes you concerned? So the way, the way we talk about it is, number one, we need to be better every day than any one of our competitors is. So we have to be intense around our coverage efforts and really be bringing those solutions to our clients. Number two, I, I think we occupy an interesting part of the business. You know, our core customer, whether it be valuation or transaction size, is 300 million to 750 million. That frankly doesn't get the attention of the big guys because the transaction sizes are too small. And we think we have better experts against that, that portion of the market than some of our other competition. So we just think we, we've been on a real talent hiring war for the last four years, brought a lot of very experienced people in, and we're just covering the market in a really intense way. I remember seeing uh, just maybe in the last couple, week, week or two, and actually I've seen over the last several months, there's articles about J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, you know, hiring bankers and opening, you know, offices, banking offices and secondary, third ter tertiary markets so they wouldn't, you know, do business before. Are you seeing that at your level? We, we are, but, uh, you know, we've competed against all those companies forever. They're in all of our marketplaces. And whether they're there physically or whether they're flying bankers in who are industry experts, we go, we, we go against everybody, the regionals, the big investment banks, the small uh, community banks every single day. So we haven't seen a real change in the individual competitors in the marketplaces. There's competition everywhere, as you said, and it's just, it, it's just a, a brutal market. All right, Don McRee, and uh, he's speaking as a 30-year veteran. Yep. And somebody who used to run corporate banking at J.P. Morgan, so he knows what he's talking about yes. when you're talking about some of your competitors. Don McRae, thank you so much for being with us here. Uh, really great to get your perspective. Don McRae is vice chairman and head of commercial banking at Citizens Financial Group, which is based in, I don't know, I'm going to shrug. I mean, it says Providence, Rhode Island, but I hear perhaps it's more Boston. I gotta say, Paul, crude is a confusing story right now. I'm looking at uh, crude traded on the NYMEX down about three quarters of one percentage point. I'm just trying to figure out though, what's the bigger influence here? The idea of trade wars being back on the table, the US and China failing to come to some sort of agreement, or are we concerned about the Iranian sanctions and the contaminated oil from Russia? Here to weigh in, Dr. Ellen Wald, president of Transversal Consulting, also a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Global Energy Center and a Bloomberg opinion columnist. Uh, Dr. Wald, thank you so much for joining us. So what is the dominant factor here over the next few weeks that will drive oil prices? I think the dominant factor in futures trading last night was definitely the tariff issue with China and fears that this could cause a recession and that that will uh, tank demand, oil demand. But now I think we're seeing uh, traders and, and also computer algorithms come to their senses and realize that there's a whole lot more going on in this oil market than just fears of a recession. And like you mentioned, we've got these sanctions on Iran, which everyone knows are going to take some amount of oil off the market, but we're just not quite sure yet exactly how much. Uh, part of that has to do with Iran's importers, because this is isn't an oil embargo. The United States is not sending ships, despite the fact that they did just send uh, several aircraft carriers to the Middle East. They're not sending ships uh, to uh, basically embargo that oil. It all depends on whether Iran's importers decide to stop 
importing that oil. And right now, it looks like the big uh, ones in question are going to be India and China. Those are the biggest importers of Iranian oil. And India seems to have halted its imports for the month of May. But a lot, I think, does depend on what happens with the Indian election. If Modi loses the election, uh, if the Congress Party is more powerful, you know, they could have an impact on whether or not they want to adhere to these U.S. sanctions. Right now, they've been very compliant and uh, they've halted uh, imports for May, but that's not necessarily a given going forward. Then with China, we'll definitely see a decrease in some respects, but China's got a whole lot of Iranian oil actually stored in a port right near China, and they can basically tap into that oil. It's not, it hasn't passed through customs yet, so it hasn't actually been imported to excuse me, to China. And they could basically just tap into that, which they have been doing, but there's a lot of oil there. So uh, we could see uh, imports from China continue for some time. Uh, Then we've got Venezuela. What in the world is going on there? Uh, The U.S. leaning on India to try to get them to stop importing Venezuelan oil. But look, you can't ask them to stop importing Iranian and Venezuelan oil at the same time. Plus, we've seen this, um, you know, we've seen a lot of, uh, you know, action going on in Venezuela that hasn't reached the oil importing or the oil uh, producing areas yet, but it could, particularly if Guaido isn't successful in in Caracas, there's definitely a possibility, and I think that the PDVSA uh, people know this, that the tensions could move out of Caracas and into other areas, particularly the oil-producing regions. So, so Dr. Wald, how much leverage does the United States have on some of these companies like China, like India, about uh, you know where they import their oil from? Yeah, it really depends, and um, I think it, it it really does depend. So th- some of the big importers in in India, we've got Naraya, which is actually owned by Rosneft mostly, and so that's going to be very difficult to convince them to stop importing Venezuelan oil because, uh, and in fact, what we've seen happen is that uh, China and Russia are actually importing Venezuelan oil and then reselling it. So, you know, we may not necessarily be able to even track whether India is buying Venezuelan oil that's just, you know, it looks like they're buying from China or it looks like they're buying from Russia, but it's really Venezuelan. And and this is a, a big issue. And, and so the U.S. leans a lot on its diplomatic influence. But, um, you know, we know that um, the Commerce Secretary is actually in India right now for a um, – for a finance conference, yeah. and uh, he's supposed to uh, participate in a trade forum. And, you know, he's saying, look, the U.S. government cannot, you know, make sure that you get oil at a discount. They yeah. just don't do that. That's not how it works. And uh, India is, is really looking for some kind of, they're saying, well, look, give us something. We want to comply with your sanctions, but, you know, we need something for, from you. We're speaking with Dr. Ellen Wald, uh, president of Transversal Consulting, and I just want to take a step back because there are all of these idiosyncratic stories uh, specific to nations and uh, geopolitical battles. I'm trying to understand, are we at a greater risk of an oil glut or are we one crisis away from an oil shortage? I mean, this seems like a very basic question, and yet there are many different answers that I've gotten to this. It it almost depends on the day that you ask that question, because last week when we got the EIA numbers that showed a huge build, it seemed like we're on the verge of a massive oil glut. And then if you look at um, the demand side of the equation, then you're saying, well, look, we could be heading to a global recession, and that's going to tank demand, and then we're definitely going to be in an oil glut. 
So, so, so it really depends, I think, what numbers you're looking at and on what day of the week. But if you're looking at what's coming from Iran, what's happening with Russia, what's happening with Venezuela, then you could say, look, we're heading towards uh, a possible oil shortage because Iran could be could be down a million barrels. Venezuela could, you know, they could halt production at any point. You know, they're they're one oil upgrader or a, you know malfunction away from from barely putting any oil on the market. And then you've got Russia with this contaminated oil, and they say that they have resumed uh, clean oil sales. But but Belarus is saying, look, we're still getting contaminated oil, and, and we don't know what to do with it. So uh, if you look at it from that respect, you're saying, well, we could be actually in a shortage. Plus, you've got Saudi, the Saudis, you've got Aramco raising their pricing uh, to Asia, saying we are will sell you oil in in June, but we're going to charge more for it because we think there's less oil out there. You've got fewer options. Dr. Ellen Wald, thank you so much for joining us. Dr. Wald is president of Transversal Consulting. She's also a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Global Energy Center and a contributor to Bloomberg Opinion. Uh, Dr. Wald, thank you so much. Joining us here uh, is, of course, our very own Mike McLone, who covers this sector and has for years. Uh, he is a commodity strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Mike, it seems like equity markets in the U.S. are trying to shake off concerns of some sort of increase in trade tensions between the U.S. and China. Not the same in soft commodities. What's going on? At least not yet. The market is basically expecting this, hoping for it, and we, it was kind of the the main hope for the support at the time. And in fact, hedge funds are record short. So right now we're giving hedge funds a gift. They're making money. They're record short. Corn, soybeans, I've never seen them that short before and the market's working so far, but it, it, it needs to be sustained. You know, this is the growing season. This is really what matters. In fact, what's down really the most today is lean hogs because we are expecting to export those. <laughs> Wait a minute, lean, what? lean hogs are yeah. not on my GLCO screen. I thought I had everything here. Well, it's, it's, it, they're in the Bloomberg Commodity Index, okay. not as widely traded, but that's been really one of the problems out of China is the African swine fever reducing their supply. They need to import more. We expected more to be from the U.S. and okay, well, that might be off the table. So you <laughs> mentioned just where are we in the growing season, planting season? Where are we here for these commodities? Prime planting season right now. And this is the time of year you usually price in a little bit of production risk premium. Meaning what if we don't get the best weather? We've, for the last five years, we had some of the best weather in history. But we're not doing that yet. This year, we're actually pricing in a discount, which is very rare and more so now and with record shorts. So the market is set up for a potential massive rally, but it just needs a spark. And right now it's the wrong way. Well, I'm trying to understand. I want to go back to what you were talking about with respect to the hedge funds uh, that are have record shorts. Is this because this is basically a hedge against a deal not getting done between the U.S. and China, uh, you know, and that sort of offsetting long bets in equities? Or is this because they do expect some sort of risk with respect to the planting season or some other uh, issue that will lead to a decline in prices? Much more of the former. And I think that's what we're, most people um, are missing is this is a very much macro picture. Interesting. And hedge funds are all, especially being former macro hedge fund strategist is this makes a lot of sense this is you short where you think it's going to matter the most and right here but it's also when uh, weather premiums can matter within a month and that's really not going to make a difference until really july 
So, Mike, we talk about kind of exporting agricultural exports. Just give us a sense of how much of some of these soft commodities, agricultural commodities, are in fact exported to China, for example. First and foremost is soybeans. So before, in, I guess we were exporting about 60% before last year. Typically, we were up to 50% of our total exports, a total production of soybeans were being exported, most of them to um to China, that dropped down to 40% last year. Now we're hoping to get that back up, but typically it takes a little while. And now we have these massive supply. There's just these big bags of soybeans everywhere, and we gotta yeah. get rid of that. Yeah, just uh, waiting around to be sold. Mm -hmm. Really interesting, the idea that the so soft commodities have become such sort of a macro bet. Is there any other period in history that's analogous to this, where soft commodities have played such a central role in macro trading strategies. You have to go back. One of the first things I think of when you say it is the Great Grain Robbery, which was in the early, I think it was 1973 or so, when we exported a whole bunch of grain to the Soviet Union at the time because they were had a massive drought and had very little um, little production. I just remember former tr tr grain traders in the pits who talk about, yeah, that's when I lost my job and I stopped trading and becoming a pit clerk because there's a lot of people who lost a lot and made a lot during that period. So I have to go back just real quick into the lean hogs. Are the prices going up or down? <laughs> yeah. Well, they, they went up a lot, and now they're mean reverting back down. So the market priced in this massive increase in demand with swine fever, and it's not getting it. Or at least it might not be getting it with this latest tweet. Lean hogs. I mean, you heard it here first. Is that pork bellies? <laughs> it used to be. It used to be pork bellies. Lean hogs. Paul Sweeney is getting hungry. It is 11.08 a.m. Wall Street time, and he is very interested in lean I hogs. Mean, only, only, <laughs> only with Mike McGlone can you talk about lean hogs. But uh, Mike covers all things uh, commodities. Mike McGlone, commodity strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Thanks so much for joining us. I mean, I think we'll probably be talking to him a lot more. Well, the trade talks between the U.S. and China hit a little bit of a speed bump yesterday as President Trump tweeted that he will consider raising tariffs by the end of the week. Uh, to get the latest on what on this developing story, we turn to Mike McDonough. Mike is a chief economist for financial products at Bloomberg. He joins us live here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. So, Mike, from your perspective and your reading of what's been going on over the last 24 hours, do you think the trade, negoti trade negotiations are, in fact, uh, really at an impasse here? Well, you said they hit a speed bump. I guess we're trying to figure out whether it's a speed bump or a wall, right? right. <laughs> uh, you know, I, this is a serious concern, right? What 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 drove, but what was the, the the driver of this tweet? Is it just trying to squeeze out a couple extra concessions, or is it something more meaningful or structural that they're trying to uh, change with the potential agreement? Uh, I just have to say that is so 2019. What's driving that tweet? I mean, honestly, <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, this is very, very, very current, uh, Mike McDonough. I, I am looking at a story uh, just published on the Bloomberg uh, that Robert Lighthizer, the top negotiator with China for the U.S., told President Trump that Beijing was backpedaling on the trade deal that they originally agreed with, saying that they would not change Chinese law as part of the agreement, which was part of the initial uh, arrangement. If that's the case, President Trump's tweets aren't what's to blame. It's that there is a structural problem in the negotiations uh, that will make it very hard to get a deal done near term, no? I uh, agree. That would be a major structural issue, structural issue, and it would be quite challenging to see zero. Trump has now also put on this deadline of Friday where he was increased tariffs. I, it's very hard for me to say, even if you have a low-level 
uh, delegation come from China to have these talks. I don't see how they get enough done by Friday to prevent these from being implemented, especially if that is the cause. Uh, you know, one, one thing I've always talked about with you guys on the show is that, you know, uh, back in Q4, both economies were weakening, markets were selling off, and I think the bar for a trade deal on both sides had gone down. Subsequently, economies, uh, China's economy is stabilizing, the U.S. is doing much better, markets are doing better. So I almost wonder if the bar for both sides has gone up, so maybe they regret a couple of the concessions they had made in the past, which would jive. I mean, this is just a theory I have, but it would jive with what you are saying about China uh, pulling back some of the... Um, intellectual property. Uh, I mean, again, elements. which brings us to the, the question that I always have, um, you know, when we talk about this trade issue, uh, issue, who really needs it more, would you guess? And even given, you mentioned both economies tend to be doing a little bit better. What do you think, who's, which side needs a good deal more? You know, I mean, I think, you know, it, it depends on if you're talking, what, what perspective you're talking from in short term or long term. But I think, um, President Trump looking at, you know, elections aren't that far away. Uh, I think he that victory would go a long way for him politically, and it would also do a lot for markets, which are kind of one in the same. You know, one, one thing you have to think about, how much of the market market performance over the past several months has been because they've kind of written off this trade war. This isn't something we really need to worry about. So if you bring that back front and center, it'll have, you know, cause a sell-off in a market, may cause some uncertainty uh, with within business leaders, may have them push off investment. And you could actually cause the economy to slow down based on the sentiment of that, and then we go back to where we were. So I think both sides really need it. Um, you know, China's economy, again, it was slowing. They've kind of stabilized it. You suddenly put these tariffs on. They're going to, there's going to be a lot more need for stimulus, fiscal monetary stimulus there. Both sides need it. Uh, and I think that's why ultimately we get it. But I have to say this was certainly an unexpected curveball for everybody. You know, uh, what, the more that I hear you talk and, and you're very familiar with China, with these negotiations, uh, the more I'm surprised that the market response has been as muted as it is. Because basically, President Trump, I don't see how he can back down from implementing tariffs that he's threatening unless there's some meaningful shift by either the Chinese negotiators coming over without losing face. And it seems like China's kind of, I don't know, putting their feet in the ground. They're not necessarily, uh, they're not necessarily rolling over. I mean, I think the market reaction's been fairly significant, but I, I do agree. People are just trying to figure out what, what do we make of this? Is this something, you know, do we get these tariffs even if it's temporary and then we get a trade deal? I think the baseline for most people is there'll still be a trade deal, though the, the road there certainly got a bit bumpier. Um, but I think if you take this out even a step further, if you're Europe or if you're North Korea, or if you're anyone right now who's negotiating with Trump and he's been saying things are going really well or it's trending in the right direction, you're going to take a step back and be concerned right now. I mean, to me, the administration lost some credibility in terms with, with, with some of their partners they're trying to negotiate with because now they're going to have to question trust. Um, so I think that's something that the market's also going to have to kind of digest. Now, think about it. If these trade talks get back on track, are the markets or are investors going to uh, see a tweet from Trump and say, OK, Trump's saying things are going well, must be going well. I don't, I don't think they're going to trust that the same way they did. So I think they're going to need much more tangible results uh, to feel good about what's happening on trade. So Mike, let's see if you can give us a sense of how much these tariffs really hurt the Chinese. Have we seen any data that suggests that they really are something that are a concern to the Chinese and the government? 
Well, it's definitely a concern. I mean, you know, the, the, the tariffs that have put, been put in place right now, um, so China's economy was slowing originally because of uh, the deleveraging process, some domestic reasons. But then, you know, at the start of this year and towards the end of last year, you got these tariffs, which did start taking a few tenths of a percent probably off China, Chinese GDP growth. You implement the full swath of tariffs that are being discussed. You know, you're, you're talking about a much more meaningful clip on China's GDP growth rate from I've seen estimates from half a percent to a full percent uh, that would force the Chinese government, you know, right after they finally stabilize the economy to have to consider far more meaningful uh, stimulus, both on the fiscal and monetary side. And that's not something as you're trying to, you know, stabilize your economy, deleverage, something you want to have to be dealing with. Mike McDonough, thank you so much for being with us. This is such an interesting area because, honestly, the fate of these trade discussions really will determine uh, the trajectory of a lot of the rest of 2019. So uh, definitely a, a really important area to focus on. Mike McDonough is chief economist for financial products at Bloomberg LP, uh, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studios. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.